Jerry O'Hanlon, you're an Irish Jesuit theologian and you have been reading the response of Pope Francis to the Amazon Synod that was widely covered a number of months ago. I suppose we'll get in right at the beginning, the coverage that it got then, among other things, one of the, the key things was the bishops voting in large numbers at the end to ask that the Pope allow deacons to become priests and de- those deacons who were married in that particular region because there weren't enough people to say Mass and people were not getting the Eucharist and the Pope has not taken up that suggestion. Are we to be disappointed by that or what is your reaction to that? Well I think there is a lot of disappointment. I've been out since with different groups and they have expressed disappointment partly due I think to the initial media coverage which wasn't saying that he hadn't addressed it but was saying that he'd said no at least that's what people took up that he'd rejected the proposals by the bishops at the Synod. And I think when you look more carefully at it, and I've looked at the whole text, and and then when you look at the commentators, almost unanimously they're saying no. He kicked a touch, if you like. He didn't answer either of those issues directly. Thomas Rees is about the only commentator who would say he said definite no to women deacons. I think that's an incorrect interpretation. I don't think he did. And I think what's happened is that for reasons which we can speculate and we will have to speculate, he has decided not to give an answer on those two issues now. But what he's clearly done, and it comes in paragraph two and three of the document, is he's leaving the discussion open. He's presenting this document, uh, the bishop's document, as a text in its own right to be read by everyone. He is not, uh, as he had done in previous apostolic exhortations after a a synod, he is not giving it the final word, if you like, or a final ruling. He did that, you see, after the uh, joy is love uh, in in that document, after the synod and the family, where in that famous footnote, he addressed the issue, a thorny issue of divorce, remarried and access to communion. So people expected this document to be the same kind, that he would give a definitive answer. But he didn't. He surprised us again. And you can speculate as to why. And I suppose part of that speculation, which has been rampant in the news, is what happened just after Christmas in the new year when Pope Benedict's name as Pope Emeritus appeared in a book by Cardinal Sarah, absolutely coming down against married priest in any shape, form or fashion. Now, there was a whole controversy over that. And his secretary, Gansfein, said he didn't give permission for this to be like a co-authored book. It was merely to be an essay in the book. Nonetheless, one way or another, when the Pope that's there before you is still around and it is making comments like that under the name of Pope, not under Cardinal Ratzinger, which he was known as a theologian, it must have brought some pressure to bear, one would think. Yes, but sources close to the writing of this are saying that the text was substantially already fixed before Christmas. But he could change it. Well, he could change it, of course. But I think what the Benedict Sarah text did, I mean, I, I doubt myself if Francis would have been swayed to that extent by that. I think what it did reveal was what Austin Ivory talks about, the dynamic within the synod itself whereby, unlike the synod and the family, where 
there was a lot of movement in the Synod itself and those in favour of one position found themselves moving and adopting a different position. And that's a classic Ignatian discernment where having listened and prayed and let oneself free and so on, people move. Whereas in this, although these two issues did get the two-thirds majority, they were the narrowest of the votes that were taken. And according to Ivory, in fact, it was the same group before and after. So there wasn't a significant movement throughout the Synod. I think that what Benedict and Sarah did, if you like, was symptomatic of that. And symptomatic maybe of, and this I think is is more like the, uh, the explanation, that this issue, although it was couched in terms of the exceptional situation in the Amazon Synod and therefore it could be allowed just there, is in fact, we all know, an issue that concerns a lot more parts of the world. So, for example, the German church at the moment is involved in what they call a binding synodal process. And this whole issue, the two issues of the married priests and the diaconate for women, is part of that binding synodal process. So they're in the middle of that and they will want to have a say on it. The Australian Plenary Council is going to be addressing that issue as well. The Liverpool Synod, which is coming up next autumn, similarly is going to address it. And given that there would have been a likely domino effect from a ruling at this stage on the Amazon Synod. I think what Francis is probably reckoning is that he needs a wider discernment, he needs input from a wider group of people. Apart from the obvious thing that he knew that we in this part of the world would jump on that part of the text immediately, sacrificing to some extent what the text is mainly about. And it is interesting that you, you get an impression that civil society in the Amazon region is very enthusiastic about the text because they recognise that it is about the social, cultural, ecological rights and situation of the Amazon. They're delighted that the indigenous people have been recognised in a very poetic, lyrical kind of way. And that for them is the main takeaway from that. But I do think we have legitimate interests as well. And you can't simply sideline the issues which we started this interview with. Uh, So I do think that they will come back on the agenda. They are still, as, as Michael Cherney said, the Cardinal said, all these issues are still on the table. And I think from my reading of it, that's very true. Okay, then, well, let's not do what we say the Pope Mm. thought might have happened, as you say, in terms of this document, because the people in the Amazon, I mean, they are in an emergency situation, really, in which case there are really important things to be said and done, and the Pope does address that. No, it's a very strong critique, and some commentators have pointed out that the President of Brazil in particular, now it doesn't apply just to Brazil, there are nine countries in the Amazon region, but Brazil is the biggest Bolsonaro is the president and he did not like this document at all and would see that the kind of soft power, if you like, which the Pope wields is a big obstacle to what he wants. So it's against the context of a very predatory kind of capitalism, extracting the deforestation, the the big farming, big ranches and so on, the the death of a lot of species, so the, the whole thing of um, biodiversity, 
And in that context, then, the native people, the indigenous people, are being left to one side, if you like. So the Pope, in he, he does it in, in terms of four dreams. And the, the first one is the social dream. So he wants to look at the human rights of the indigenous people and the way in which they're being ignored by this approach. And then he talks about the cultural aspect. And so they have a very rich culture. And he outlines some of that and he he knows that there are issues about it as well. It's not all rosy and yet he feels that the way forward is through dialogue between the cultures and then between their cultures the, of the indigenous people and the surrounding culture. And again, he's very eloquent on that and most eloquent on the ecological. So they're just the natural beauty of the Amazon, the whole value of eco-diversity. And he quotes a, up to 20 different poets in a very lyrical way, just their sense. It's a kind of mysticism which the people spontaneously have of a oneness with nature, which is very different from our typically Western approach, which is more instrumental or utilitarian, and uh, that that whole scripture translation of being Lord or um, dominating creature, uh, creation. They're much more in tune with this stewardship model, which is is the better translation of the Hebrew text. So he's very much in, in, in favour of the local people. And then in that context, he imagines an ecclesial dream. And the ecclesial dream, it's very interesting because originally the bishops had said it's important to cultivate and promote ministries for men and women in an equitable manner. That's an extraordinary statement. That's a kind of an indication of how much the ground has shifted. And the Pope is taking up that kind of thing and trying to give official standing to the position of many women in communities who are already leaders of the community, but not recognised canonically or civilly as such. And he's opened the way for for that to happen, both women and men. But in fact, in, in a large majority of the cases, it is women. So you can see that in one sense, he's moved a lot even on that particular issue. He talks about the Amazonian church with a lay face and Amazonian holiness, if you like. And he wants to move away from a clericalized church. And a lot of feminist men and women would be for that. And you, you commonly hear it say, say by women, I don't want to be a priest in the way that priests are there at the moment. But nonetheless, it doesn't take him off the hook of why in principle not allow women to be priests. That's the the old theology, which again he quotes in this particular uh, uh, response. So there is more work to be done, it seems to me, on that. But the fact that uh, somebody like Eamon Martin could go in Morning Ireland here the morning after the publication and say he's very open to married clergy is again an indication, as that other phrase of the Amazonian bishops is, that the ground has shifted, that we're talking in a new context. So the whole thing of discernment then is within that new context. And certainly, going back to this, what we talked about at the start, there is no closing down of discussion here. And in fact, he says in the middle of all this, let us be fearless, let us not clip the wings of the Holy Spirit. So you can see the kind of attitude he has. Yeah, and those dreams, the, the exhortation itself, I mean, it is interesting in the way it is written because it's, mm. he, he quotes Pablo Neruda and people mm. like that, mm. wonderful poets. Mm. And 
it is in a sense almost as if the medium is the message at some level that he has picked mm. up the spirit of mm. the people, the Amazonian mm. people and what mm. will speak to them mm. and reflects mm. that in the actual mm. exhortation itself. Mm. It's not mm. like even mm. some of his own exhortations mm. which differ from most mm. exhortations mm. that popes have mm. made. I think that's right and uh, it's closest in the ecological dream, that section to Laudato Si in, in quoting poetry as well, but it goes even further I think than Laudato Si. But I think if you recall the analysis in Laudato Si was that while the scientific data was so important and the philosophical and the legal and so on, that in fact it had to be a change of heart. You won't convince people in the end just by data, however important that is, that in some way we have to fall in love with the world again. We have to really appreciate nature, feel at one with it. And that's, of course, the great gift that the uh, indigenous people can give to us and which Francis is recognising here in the way that he writes the encyclical in the way you've described very lyrically and without a discursive argumentative tone. It's, it's just extremely lyrical. But I do think, going back to, again, the elephant in the room, if you like, in terms of the disappointment people felt, we're on a stage of transition here into a different model of church, into a synodal church. And what this controversy is showing up, the fault lines, if you like, in that move, fault lines which Francis himself probably is having to come to terms with as well. There are two main ones, it seems to me. One is the relationship between papal primacy and episcopal collegiality. So how you put those two together. Yeah, because it got the two-thirds majority. It got I mean, the two-thirds majority, yeah. exactly, yeah. And somebody like uh, Ladislaus Orsi talking about this would say that, in fact it would be good for the papacy. He wasn't writing, this is eight or nine mm. years ago before this happened, but he was talking about the gift of synodality then uh, in a very prophetic kind of way. But he was saying it would be good if the papacy resumed its role of last court of appeal or a certain veto, but not a hands-on, ongoing, deliberative silencing of bishops' conferences and so on. Now, I think the Pope is really letting bishops' conferences speak, but you can still see there's a tension there that's a bit unresolved. And similarly then, uh, the tension between the Pope and the bishops on one side and the voice of the laity on the other side. So this whole, what weight do you give the census fidei? If, what, how exactly do you do that? And the document produced two years ago by the Anglican Roman Catholic Commission, some very interesting things to say about that. They compared the two churches and their way of organising, and particularly from the viewpoint of synodality, and they noted, the Catholic side noted, that the Anglican side gave a much more authoritative, deliberative weight to the voice of the faithful than the Catholic side mm. did. It still remained, at best, consultative. And so there's some unfinished business there, it seems to me, that with all the caveats, I mean, the Protestants, the Anglicans, the Orthodox as well, have things like weighted majorities and you can't touch certain issues and bishops are the only ones who can do this and so on. But nonetheless, within that, there's a much more lively sense of lay involvement. And it seems to me we're, we're sort of groping towards that at this stage and we haven't yet found a sure way. Also, and that I think is correct, 
nonetheless, I do come back to this point. Like the Amazon is in serious, serious mm. trouble. And it's not just that region. I mean, this is mm. knock-on impacts for mm. fires in California, mm. for, you know, the, the earth as we know it. A lot of people would say nowadays that a lot of the things that we are talking about mm that are of immediate mm. concern mm. pale into insignificance mm. if we really got the message about mm. the danger to the earth mm. that mm. we really do not have the time so there are really pressing issues and you mm. talked about the president of brazil bolsonaro he's a great admirer of trump mm. trump is a mm. climate change denier and pope francis spoke very strongly about that i mean he used the terms mm. about being a crime what was happening so if what he says on the other hand is taken as seriously as what he is not saying about uh, married priests mm. or women priests mm. there'd be a lot to be done if mm. people listened to it and did mm. it no absolutely and i mean that's why i think that the the major priority for him and for the people there and i think for our world is climate change and biodiversity and all that goes with it and and if he can be a strong influence there that's wonderful but he knows as well as the rest of us that the catholic principle if you like is both and not either or so you don't just go for one issue uh, you can prioritise certainly but it, it doesn't mean you don't give attention to other issues as well and signs on because the bishops themselves in the Amazon, in the light of the crisis that was there were still able to give time to these more popular issues in the West if you like of um, women priests or women deacons and uh, married priests and the Pope there is very interesting because you can see him trying to work it out himself He he's saying things like we need a lay church, we need need a declericalized church and yet on the other hand he's saying that the Eucharist needs holy orders, needs priests and the Eucharist is the summit of the Christian life as uh, Vatican II said and uh, and then he's restricting priesthood to certain categories if you like. So there's still unresolved stuff there which he knows is unresolved and I think it's quite right to say that maybe other Aspects are much more important as the the whole climate change thing. But he'd be the last to deny that there isn't a real issue here and that it needs sorting. And I do think then that the, the bit that maybe all of us are trying to come to terms with, to what extent does discernment really work in these situations? And on the one hand, you, you can have lots of good reasons from theology, from justice and so on to argue for women deacons, women priests, married priests. And on the other hand, he's trying to listen and inviting us to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And that goes back to what happened in the early church in the Council of Jerusalem and ever since. And certainly good theology and justice is one are part of that. And yet there's something we believe that happens in a discernment process, he believes. And so that's being tested in a very large stage now and a stage that doesn't quite understand it because it's a real call on people's faith. And I wouldn't expect the New York Times or RTE or the BBC to even get interested in that aspect of it. They they will see the other very important points about justice and about if they go into it, about the theology and so on. But he's really saying, what does the Holy Spirit ask of us now and I find that fascinating and just having been part of various Jesuit discernments where you went in thinking one thing and something happened in the course of it and something a bit surprising came out of it not always sometimes it's exactly the way you expect it 
it would develop. But sometimes something surprising happens. And I think he's at least asking us to be open to that. And so I don't buy the bit that he'll be deterred by Pope Benedict or deterred and, and that he's kicking to touch because he can't bite uh, the bullet, I really think he's shown in lots of ways that he bites bullets all the time. But I do think that it's an important issue which probably warrants a wider and deeper discernment. And if something has gone on, as the Mary Priest thing has for a thousand years, and we've only formally looked at it, I know in pubs and so on, we've been looking at it for the last 50 years, but we've only formally looked at it for two years, I can stand another year looking at it if, if it comes out as a good discerned decision. And that could be from those other synods that you mentioned exactly, as well. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think the German thing will, will push matters. And there's been several attempts to scuttle the German thing. And it's Francis which has defended the whole process. You know, various congregations in Rome have tried to say, no, this is taking over what's proper to the universal church. And he's come back all the time and said, no, let, let it happen, let it happen. And the Australians will be the same. Limerick already did this. They already declared in favour of that. Not formally in the Synod, because you couldn't do it, but they did it in the proceedings and was sent to Rome. So he's getting lots of input from different parts of the world. And I'd love Eamon Martin, our own Archbishop, to move from saying, I'm open to this, to actually putting the Episcopal weight behind it, even to the extent of of having synods in Ireland, having a national synod, where that would be an added authoritative uh, weight to what's already happening in other parts of the world. Um, So it would be great if that could uh, happen, and uh, hopefully it will happen. I sense a note of hope with you. Yeah, you're saying hopefully, and I see you're not as disappointed as you might have been. Are you as hopeful on the ecology issue? Yes, I'm. I, I am hopeful. I mean, I, I. It's interesting because a lot of research shows that, particularly in the United States, that Catholics are not reacting any differently from others in the population. So you could say, well, after this papal encyclical, surely after Laudato Si, surely now it has enthused sections of the secular media and secular academia and that's almost ironic that sometimes it's the Catholics who have other irons in the fire if you like who find it harder to hear the message but I do think there's a momentum around the ecological thing and of course not just Pope Francis, it's Greta Dunberg, it's it's various other prophetic figures. And I do think that it's probably as much now a matter of the imagination and the heart as it is of the scientific evidence, which is surely there. And there's something there which is still holding us back. And uh, I do think that's a question of uh, conversion. <laughs> 